turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As you guys are doing that, I want to... Phil mentioned that I have been writing more often recently. I don't know if, if you haven't seen that. I would encourage you to go out and, and take a look uh, and read and, and, as Phil said, share. Um, also, if you, if, you could, uh, if you have questions, if you have things that you want to, for me to answer, if you would like to see something addressed, uh, let me know. I'd love to use that opportunity. the The hope in that blog is that I would that I would encourage our body. It's not for wider consumption necessarily, although it is on the internet. So, so it's there available for other people uh, outside of our body. But I would like, and I would love for you to be encouraged here. So, if you have any questions or any thing that you would like to see addressed on the blog, let me know. I can't promise that I'll get right to it. Uh, it's been, I've been using the time away. I, I'm not preaching. I'm preaching again next week, and then uh, I'll be uh, not preaching uh, the two weeks after that. So I've been using that time away from preaching to write and to organize my thoughts. And so please, uh, please take the opportunity to let me know of anything that you would like to see addressed. So let's, uh, let me pray, and then we'll get started in, in our study of Ephesians. We pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning and praise you for your goodness. Lord, I pray that this time, this study, whatever it takes of uh, months, years, whatever it takes to get through it, I pray that you would use it in a mighty way. Not for my glory, not for, uh, anyone's glory here but for your glory father i pray and ask that you would just bless this time in jesus name amen well we have made it to ephesians pray as i prayed earlier as i prayed just now i pray that this this study will be fruitful for this church and for each of you as individuals I've heard it said, and you might agree with this, I've heard it said that if you want to grow the church, just preach Revelation, and they'll pack in, because the future is intriguing to us. We all know, we all want to know what's going to happen in the future. We want the mysteries of the future to be revealed. We want to be given some great insight. I can tell you that we would have, let me just tell you this, that we would have people packed into this building if they truly understood the message of Ephesians. If they truly understood the message of Ephesians, we would have this building packed. Not because of me, but because of what God would reveal to us through this wonderful epistle. As such, it is your job then to take what we learn from this epistle and take it and share with those who need to hear it. Now, I want to be up front with you as we get started. We're going to take the next two weeks, this week and next week, to introduce Ephesians. 
And so, as such, we're not going to spend much time in the book for those first two. There are some things that we must fully grasp in in order to understand what Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians. So I hope and pray that you will be patient with me as we work through this, what we'll call, introductory material. I promise, I promise you this, I make a promise to you, that as we work through the book of Ephesians, that you'll understand and it'll make sense to you why I am doing what I'm doing for these first two weeks. But I'm fully aware, I I want you to know this as well, that, that, that we're going to do some heavy lifting. That, that there are going to be some things that will be hard to understand. And there will be some gaps that we're going to struggle to fill. That's the way it works. As Craig Keener states, he's a, he, he writes commentaries. Uh, Craig Keener says, and I quote, God is consistent with His nature and declared purposes in Scripture, but He is not limited to our finite understanding of Him or the ways we think he should work, end quote. So what Craig Keener is saying there is, is that God has revealed in his scripture, he, he has clearly revealed what we need to know about him. But he's not limited in that. And so there's going to be things that we don't completely understand. And that we're going to have to work to understand and through the through the working of the Holy Spirit in our heart, would be revealed to us in time. Beloved, I promise you that we are going to be in some rarefied air. I pray that you will grasp some of the glory, something of the glories of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ as we study this epistle. I hope that you learn how you fit in the glorious plan of God. Now I've titled the name of this sermon series, so this is, this is the name of the series, The Church, A Mystery Revealed. And I, I think that you'll understand as we go through this, this, uh, these sermons, I think you'll understand why uh, that is the title of the sermon, or series that is. I pray that God will open our eyes and our hearts to truly grasp the grandeur of His plan for the church. I pray that this understanding will have a massive impact on Grace Bible Church, on Gainesville, and beyond. Let me read to you the first few verses of Ephesians. If you'd follow along with me in your Bibles, it says, starting in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who... on us, 
in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, if that sounded like a mouthful, because it is a mouthful, that's all the way from verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. And we're going to go through and unpack that over the next several weeks and months. Me. We get started here with, let me give you a story. During World War II, a little history that is, a little history lesson. During World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States joined the rest of the Allied forces to defeat the Axis powers of Italy, Germany, and Japan. Soon after a victory in Europe, the Soviet Union increased its hold on uh, Eastern Europe which was also called the Eastern Bloc, beginning what has been dubbed as the Cold War. The, to- the term cold was used because there was no large-scale fighting in this war, but, but there, was, there was a coldness between two nations, two cultures. There was plenty of tension between them, and there was a war... Uh, this was a war, that is, of very different cultures. On one side was the capitalistic and, and freedom-loving United States, and on the other side was the Marxist-Leninist total- totalitarian government of the Soviet Union. Now, a, a study of the Cold War reveals a world of mystery and intrigue. Both sides feared the other, and at times the fear was palpable because of the nuclear arms race, right? If some of you may have lived through these times and can remember the, the, the worry of uh, proliferation. We don't worry about that quite as much anymore. And everyone understood the destructive nature of nuclear weapons, and each side had enough weapons to destroy the other. But each nation felt the need uh, during this time to gain an advantage over the other. There was espionage. Both sides utilized a network, an international network of spies to infiltrate the opponent to gain crucial information to, to, to gain an advantage. The space race of the 50s, 60s, and 70s were bo- was born out of this competition between these two superpowers. In 1955, the United States declared an intent to launch an artificial satellite into, into space. But the Soviets beat them to it in October of that same year. And there was great fear in the U.S. that the Soviets were spying on the United States with these satellites flying overhead. This is laughable as we look back, but it, is a, it was a harbinger of things to come as both sides developed satellite technology. Now, after the Soviets struck their first blow, the U.S. fell perpetually behind in the space race until 
a young president, John F. Kennedy, said, uh, declared that we would go, as the United States would go to the moon, that we would take, we would have a manned mission and land someone on the moon and bring them back safely. With this message, with this message, President Kennedy challenged the United States, and the best and the brightest were put together and given the challenge of putting a man on the moon. And in 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon and were returned safely. We might, we might remember that when he landed and stepped on the moon, he said, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Now here's the, what I want you to see. Apollo 11, which was the mission, effectively ended the space race. It fulfilled Kennedy's goal of landing on the moon and returning a man safely to the earth by that end of that decade in the 60s. But during that moonwalk, the astronauts planted the American flag on the surface of the moon. Now, it had taken eight years of progress and failure for the U.S. to fulfill his declaration and plant that flag. And it would take several more years to show that the Soviet Union was unable to do the same. Looking back, though, planting that flag was the device, or decisive, that is, decisive blow in the space race. When Ronald Reagan uttered these powerful words in 1987 to the Soviet General Secretary in Berlin, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was the end of the war, the end of the Cold War. But it took many years to get to that point. The story gives us an analogy of our first point. We see today we're going to introduce our study in the book of Ephesians. And we'll do this by looking at three mysteries revealed in the Scripture. We're going to see the the mystery of of God's redemptive plan, the mystery of God's redeemed people, and the mystery of God's redeemed preacher. Now, all good analogies break down at some point, but in many ways, God's redemptive plan follows much the same pattern as the Cold War and the space race. Just as there was mystery and intrigue in the Cold War and in the ensuing space race, there was there is much mystery and intrigue in God's redemptive plan. There are many things that God has kept secret throughout all of history until the New Testament. These things have finally been revealed in the New Testament. These now these are the mysteries. Mystery simply means something that has been hidden and is now revealed in the New Testament. The New Testament reveals things. We, we need to understand this. The New Testament reveals things that the Old Testament saints never knew. We have been given spiritual truth in the New Testament, a spiritual resource that they never had. In this church age, we've been given new truth, new revelation that they never knew in the past. Moses refers to this in making the statement in Deuteronomy 29.29 when he says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, interestingly, and I think this is this will make a point later, but interesting, Moses says this regarding Israel's future, future disobedience, judgment, and exile. He says, look, this is what's going to happen. That, that there's going to be this disobedience and Israel's going to be cut off for a, for a time period. 
We may not understand that. It's a, it's a mystery yet to be revealed. Now you might be under, asking yourself, why would God withhold information from His people? Because He is God and we are not. That's the answer. Because He is God and we are not. Listen to this quote by James Montgomery, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. God's self-existence means that He is not answerable to us or to anybody. Although he sometimes explains things to us, he does not have to and often does not. God does not have to explain himself to anybody, end quote. Does not have to explain himself to anybody. In Genesis 1, it always goes back to Genesis with me, right? In Genesis 1, God gloriously created the world and all that it contains. He spoke the world into existence by the power of His Word. In Genesis 1.26-28, it says that God created man in His own image and likeness and placed him on earth to rule over His new creation. In Genesis 1.31, God deemed this creation to be very good. This included the man and the woman who had been created in God's own image. God created paradise for the man and woman to dwell forever. But in Genesis chapter 3, Satan struck what seemed to be a decisive first blow against God and His new creation. Earlier in Genesis 2.15, we've heard this, but it says the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now after this, after this, Satan came in the form of the serpent and approached Eve with the proposition we all wish she would have refused, right? You know, I've got a proposition that you can't refuse. We all wish that she would have refused this proposition. The serpent was able to deceive Eve by casting down on God's word. And she took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she ate. And she gave to her husband and he ate from it as well. And with this, this, with Adam's act of willful disobedience God's, uh, to God's word, sin and death was introduced into the world. And it looked as though Satan had won. Paradise lost. God's perfect creation spoiled. Mankind lost. Much later, the Apostle Paul would tell the Romans and the, and, and the Corinthians much the same thing. Through one man, sin entered the, the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But in Genesis 3.15, God declared curses against the, the serpent, childbirth, and the ground. Significantly, we need to understand that God did not curse the man and the woman condemning them forever. Instead, He declared that He would redeem them. He declared right there that He would redeem man and woman. He didn't curse them. He declared to Satan this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Beloved, all-out war had been declared. All-out war had been declared. Indeed, Satan would win some skirmishes. He would strike some heavy blows, but they would do nothing to thwart God's plan of redemption of the man and woman. 
And he, God would, God declared right there that he would strike a, the divisive, or the, I keep saying divisive, decisive blow against Satan. Satan. He declared that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of Satan. And we call this the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. There in the garden was the most, just after the most cataclysmic event ever. God declared victory through the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. Though none of them were mentioned directly. You see the, you see the mystery? No flags were planted, but victory had been declared. He revealed that there would be victory, but he didn't reveal much more. Just like Kennedy said in 1961, we will go to the moon. We will, we will win this space race. That didn't occur until 1969 and didn't ultimately occur and, and be known until much later. In the garden, after this event of man's fall, God declared that he would win. Obviously, he has much more, much more power to bring it about than John F. Kennedy did. He would take the rest of the Old Testament to reveal everything we needed to know about the Messiah, though there was still an air of mystery leading up to his appearance. And I would argue that the rest of Genesis 1-11 through highlights the search for this Redeemer or Messiah. Adam and Eve understood that the Messiah or this Redeemer would be their offspring, but they did not know who it would be. Through it all, through it all, the line of the Messiah was preserved. God even preserved the human race and the line of the Messiah through the flood, which destroyed the entire earth. And after the flood, God repeated his command to the man and, or to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. <coughs> but they defied him. But they defied him by gathering in one place. They said, they said in Genesis 11:4, they, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Then God confused their language and scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So God brought the languages and the nations into being. This, my friends, is a significant development. And it begs a question. If man no longer speaks the same language, then how, how will the nations hear and understand the message of redemption? Secondly, where will this Messiah Redeemer come from? How will we know who He is? Remember this question because it has much significance as we move forward in the story of redemption. Now at this point in the story, God reveals a man named Abram. God had called this man to leave his country and his relatives. 
And God promised him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Notice he said, I will make your name great. What did they try to do at the Tower of Babel? They were trying to make a name for themselves. Now God says, I will make, he says to Abram, I will make your name great. It's God who does it. God is the one who's going to redeem mankind. Mankind can never redeem himself. And that's what they're trying to do, right? That's what they're trying to do. Save themselves. In chapter 12, verse 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now listen to this, though. This is the last part of verse 3. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we know from the rest of the Old Testament that God did make Abraham a great nation. He did bless him. And He did give him a land. Land, seed, and blessing. Always remember that. Land, seed, and bless the promises. Land, seed, and blessing. He did bless those who blessed him and He cursed those who cursed him. But I would argue that none of these have had their complete fulfillment. None of them. None of these promises have had their complete fulfillment. Now, I also want to point out in the last part of verse 3, as, as I pointed out when I was reading it, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is a, an intriguing statement. What do you think God meant by giving this promise? I would argue that God meant that He will bless all of mankind through Abraham and Abraham's seed. So this, is, this introduces a concept that we need to understand. As we, as we approach Ephesians. God's redemptive plan has always included all the nations. God's redemptive plan has always included all the nations. In other words, God's people will be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now this understanding brings a whole new light to the Tower of Babel, right? God, man's intent was evil, but God used it for good using Genesis 50:20 we will see this truth that man's evil and God's using it for good throughout all of redemptive history God used man's unwillingness to spread over the earth to create the nations and it is these nations who will ultimately give him praise does that make sense when you look at revelation the nations that were created by God confusing the language and spreading people throughout the earth those nations are the same nations that are being referred to when God says that He will have worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now again, I would certainly argue that the promise to bless all the nations through Israel has not been completely fulfilled. And I believe that this fulfillment will happen in a future millennial kingdom. Now, we don't have time to study the significance, much of the significance of the nation of Israel, but I do want to make a few comments that I believe <coughs> about their purpose that I believe have ramifications on our study of Ephesians. Now, let me, let me give you four main purposes for Israel. Four main purposes for Israel. Israel's first purpose was to be a vehicle for God's blessing of the entire world. We saw this in Genesis 12.3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As such, as such, the fate of the whole world 
rest in the fate of Israel. Make sure you understand that. The fate of the whole world rests in the fate of Israel. We need to, we need to get this. Those who discount Israel do so at their own peril. Everything that God did with Israel has a larger purpose of blessing the whole world. Now, Israel didn't understand this. Israel didn't understand this. They thought it was all about them, and it was. But it was all about them for the purpose of blessing the whole world. As I said, God's plan has always included the nations. In Isaiah 40, God comforts Israel by telling them that He will care for them so that they're going to be sent into exile. But in spite of being in exile, God is comforting comforting them and telling them that He will care for them. He says this in Isaiah 41.8. He says He will be a shepherd to them. He says this in 41.8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, Jacob whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and I said and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now this passage, if you look at it in Isaiah 41, this passage continues in this, in this fashion as God encourages, as God encourages the nation of Israel through Isaiah. But what I want you to see is that God calls Israel His servants. His servants. Later in Isaiah 42, He calls the Messiah His servant. That's important for us to see. He says in Isaiah 42.1, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights, I have put My spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will, cry, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now I would argue that this has not been completely fulfilled. This has not been fulfilled. The Lord Jesus, the servant... The Messiah, who Isaiah is referring to, has not ruled in this way. Now it goes on to say, in Isaiah 42.5, Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, and who spread out on the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. It's a light to the nations. Now, who is this servant? We've already seen that God has called Israel his servant. But now he's calling the Messiah his servant. This Messiah. Now, I would argue then, I would argue that Israel will be a light to the nations just as God stated. They will reign with the suffering servant when they come to see the identity of Jesus as the suffering servant and their Messiah. That's Isaiah 53. 
they will look upon him whom they have pierced, right? They, they will come to see that Jesus, the one whom they sent to the cross, the one who was crucified, they will come to see that he is the Messiah. And they will, they will come to him and they will repent. So again, that's Isaiah 53. They will fulfill, they will be uh, the vehicle for God's blessing of the entire world. They will be a light to the nations. Israel's second purpose was to receive the covenants and the law of God. Israel was given the Mosaic covenant and the law of God to demonstrate the holiness of God to the nations. To demonstrate the holiness of God to the nations. In Exodus 19, God spoke to Moses saying this, 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will obey, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, what covenant is he talking about? The Mosaic covenant where the law was given, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this covenant gave God's expectation of how the nation Israel was to act before their Lord. So God gave Israel the law to demonstrate his holiness to them and to the world and to show us what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Israel's failure to obey then, because they did fail to obey, demonstrated mankind's need for a savior. Put it this way. If Israel had been, who had been given every advantage could not obey God's law, then how could the pagan nations ever obey it? We can say then that the law pointed to our need for God's grace. Israel demonstrates that the law does not save, and it's, but it serves as a tutor pointing to our need for salvation, for grace. Said another way, if grace is the life preserver that saves us, then the law is the sign which points to the life preserver. Listen to Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. 520, it says this, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the law, the law shows the transgression. But where the transgression increased, grace abounded all the more. Israel's third purpose was to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior. So, so the law shows us our need for the grace, for, for the, atonement, the, the atonement, right? The third purpose then was to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior. In 2 Samuel 7, God established what we call the Davidic covenants. This is, the, the, this is God's promise to establish the throne of David forever. 
So we've seen the Abrahamic or the the uh, Abrahamic covenant that God promised land, seed, and blessing. Then we saw the Mosaic covenant, which basically is is the the expectation that God had toward Israel. As I said earlier, it demonstrated mankind's need for a savior but it also shows us what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. This is now the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7.10 I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the, that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up, this is what we're getting at, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that was partially fulfilled in Solomon, because Solomon built the temple. But that was that will not be fully fulfilled until the Lord Jesus Christ comes to reign on the on the Davidic throne. And his he will establish his kingdom. Now after Pentecost, so we're we're going forward. After Pentecost, the, the, the apostles understood this purpose for Israel. Peter stood up at Pentecost and he preached a message. Now, before we get into that message, I want to say this. That it must be said that Pentecost was a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you haven't thought of it that way. It always amazes me how people focus on tongues, the gift of tongues, right? Everybody wants to speak in tongues. But they missed what God actually accomplished at Pentecost. If you, if you look at Acts 2, you can turn there if you'd like. It says this, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation, right? There's, a, there's that, that word nation. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these speaking, all these who were speaking, why are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And listen to this in verse, chapter 2, verse 8. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Figria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Beloved, what does it mean? It means they were able to hear the good news of the Messiah in their own tongue. Remember what I said? Remember the question that I posed? How, how does 
How does the gospel go forth when the nations are, are speaking in, in confused languages? And so after this, Peter took his stand. And he says this. Now note, and remember, this is my point, that, that the apostles understood that Israel's purpose was to bring, one of Israel's purposes was to bring forth the Messiah. And he said this in Acts 2.23. He says, you delivered him over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This is the Messiah. This is Christ Jesus. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Then he made this declaration. Acts 2.36 Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him. Who? The one you crucified. The one that you crucified. The one that you nailed to the cross. You made him both Lord and Christ. The Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. The Messiah had been sent to the Jews just as God had promised. And they had crucified him. The Apostle Paul also understood this truth in Acts 13. Turn there if you'd like, starting in verse 16. Paul stood up motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. For a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the, in the wilderness. And he destroyed nations and he distributed land as an inheritance. And he gave the judges until Samuel. And they asked for a king and he gave them Saul. And he, and he removed Saul and he raised up David. It says, says of David in verse 22, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. In verse 23, From the descendants of this man, who? David, right? According to promise, God has brought, brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after John had proclaimed, before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, who, who, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not who? The Messiah. I'm not, I'm not the one. Behold, but behold, one is coming after me who, whose sandals, uh, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Messiah came from Israel. Their purpose, one of their purposes was to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior. Fourth, God's fourth purpose is to make Israel a light to the nations. We've already seen this. As such, all the promises made to Israel will come to pass. God promised them a land, He promised them seed, and He promised them blessings. And they will receive all of these in full in the future. 
I believe that they will be fulfilled as they reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Listen to Acts chapter 1 in verse 4. This is Jesus gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with, with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We saw that. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. He didn't deny that there would be a kingdom for Israel. He said, it's not for you to know when. Which to me says it will happen. And when it does, Israel will, the, the promises to Israel will be fulfilled. Now, as we finish up, let me give you Quickly, four major implications I think will help us in our embark as we embark on our study of Ephesians. I told you we weren't going to get to Ephesians today, and we probably won't get there next week. <coughs> I hope you're patient with me. Let me give you four major implications. One, we are part of an epic battle between God and Satan. We are part of this battle, but make no mistake, this battle is between God and Satan. Victory has been declared. The question is, whose side are you on? That's the question. There are two clear sides on this, in this battle, and there's one clear victor who has declared victory. The question is, have you declared your allegiance to him today? Have you bowed your knee to Him today? Well, you have to understand, this is a, a battle that we can't see. But it is a battle nonetheless. I brought up the Cold War earlier, right? All analogies break down. But this is a battle that's similar to that. It's being fought at a thought at a level that we can't understand and see at a spiritual level. But there is a clear winner. Second implication. And we've already brought this out a little bit, but this battle is first and foremost a spiritual battle which is being fought in the heavenly places. This battle is first and foremost a spiritual battle which is being fought in the heavenly places. As a sneak peek, in Ephesians 6, Paul says something that should help us see the spiritual nature of this battle. Look at verse 10. Paul writes this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our, str our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? We see plenty of wickedness on this earth, right? That we see. 
But this is a spiritual battle that's being fought in the heavenly places. Third implication. The glory of God is at stake in this battle. Therefore, it's much bigger than you and me. The glory of God is at stake in this battle. Therefore, it is much bigger than you and me. Beloved, it is incredibly easy to read the Bible and take a myopic view of it. Making it all about us. I'm sorry to break it to you, but the Bible is not about us. Individually, that is. It's about God and His glory. It's about what God is doing in this world to redeem a, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation as His own possession. Now, let me, let me soften that a little bit. I said it's not about us. We have the pr- privilege to partake in this. So in that sense, it is, right? In that sense, it is about us because we, have the, we are God's possession. And we're part of God's plan of redemption. We have a privilege to partake in His plan. And this is an amazing truth that has incredible implications on our lives. It has incredible implications on on us as a church. You see the difference though? When I read the Bible and I read it as primarily about me, it's different than when I understand it's primarily about God and His glory. And the fact that I get to partake in this. I get to partake in what God is doing. That God has declared victory. And I get to be a part of it. Fourth implication. At this point in His revelation, God has not revealed the church. At this point in Revelation, God has not revealed the church. We've talked about Israel. We've talked about the purpose of Israel. And that's going to be important because what we're going to see is is that how the church and Israel work together. And I wanted to be clear that God has a, a future for Israel. I don't believe the Bible teaches that God has replaced Israel with the church. Let me just say it that way. There are some who do. I don't believe that's what's happened. And that's going to be important as we we go through Ephesians. In Matthew 16, Peter declares that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord answers Peter and makes this profound statement. We've we've gone through this before. I preached it a, a year or so ago. That... Jesus said to him in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he says this in Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That, beloved, is the first mention of the church in Scripture. Do you remember the story of the space race? You might have been asking yourself why I gave that story, right? 
This is Jesus planting his flag on the earth. Remember Armstrong and Aldrin planted the flag on the moon? Signifying that they that, that we had won? When Jesus declared that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not overpower it, this is Jesus planting his flag here on earth. This was his statement of victory. God had declared victory in Genesis 3. But now Jesus is saying this victory would occur through the church. This gives great significance to Matthew 28, right? It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of who? The nations, right? So the church is the, is going to all the nations, taking the gospel to all the nations. It also gives great significance to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where God says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So what's our, what's our job then as a church? To take the gospel to the nations. To preach the gospels to the gospel to the nations. And now you see the significance of Acts chapter 2 where they could hear, the nations could hear the gospel, hear the mighty acts of God in their own tongue, right? Beloved, we are part of this great redemptive story. Yesterday I was thinking, as I was, as I was studying, I was thinking of the dissonance in my heart. You know what the dissonance was from as we close? On one hand, I'm reading how uh, of these awesome things of God. How God has declared victory. How God has, has declared that He has won. That He will crush the head of the serpent. I'm also reading of, of how amazing it is that we're part of this great spiritual battle and that we're on the side that wins. And it's, it's this great spiritual reality, right? This incredible spiritual reality that God is the victor. But then there's life. There's life. There's life in our families. There's struggle. There's difficulty. There's problems. There's life in this church. We're supposed to be this great spiritual reality, part of this great epic battle. Yet, we have our problems and issues as a church. We have real life, right? But the more that we can understand what God is doing, and even though this seems insignificant, even though our gathering together seems insignificant, the more we understand what God is accomplishing with us here. You know the angels are watching? The angels are watching. They're, they're, they're learning from us. The more we begin to see this spiritual reality, the more we can understand that even in the mundane moments of life, we are accomplishing amazing things for Christ. 
I hope you will come to see that as we continue our study, as we approach Ephesians and continue our study in Ephesians. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. I know that this has been um, some heavy lifting, maybe even some gaps of understanding. And yet, Lord, I trust if we stick with it, that if we work hard to understand that you will show us amazing and great things. What I pray in my own heart about this cognitive dissonance that's there of looking at the real world, so, so to speak, and what is true in reality spiritually. Father, may, may I live my life, may we live our lives before you were understanding the reality of who we are in you. May we live that way so that we may be pleasing to you, living our lives as a living sacrifice before you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.